This week on the show, we tell you about controlling the resource limits on your system with RCTL. It's always DNS and a bit more around that. Google Summer of Code in BSD projects. The rsync technical notes are of interest for you if you're running ZFS. UserLand CPU frequency scheduling for OpenBSD is an interesting one as a bunch of other developments have happened in OpenBSD as well. And this is in the show as well. And you should check it out. Yeah. <laughs> BSD Now, episode 448, Controlling Resource Limits. Recorded on the 23rd of April, May, June. No, it's March still, 2022. And this episode is brought to you by Tarsnap. Go to tarsnap.com slash bsdnow for the online backup for the truly paranoids. And if you would like to support this show with a little bit of a tip in our tip jar, maybe, then check out our Patreon page on patreon.com slash bsdnow. Hello, we are your hosts, Benedict Reuschling. And Alan Jude. Welcome. We have fresh BSD content every week for you, and this one is no different. Starting with headlines from Clara Systems, another great article about controlling resource limits with RCTL in FreeBSD. Yeah, so RCTL is the resource control system built into FreeBSD, uh, and it allows you to limit uh, a specific user or jail or process uh, to... Uh, you know, a limited amount of memory or file descriptors or address space uh, or number of threads uh, or amount of reads and writes uh, to the file system in either bytes per second or IOPS per second. Yeah, this came uh, probably from the early Unix days where people had to share this one big monster machine and they had to, you know, carefully allocate who gets what. And this is still possible today. Right. So there's the older limit system with like login.conf. But the RCTL stuff is relatively new. I think it came in around FreeBSD 8 or 9. Mm -hmm. uh, so this is some work sponsored by the FreeBSD Foundation. Uh, and it is quite modern, actually. Oh, yes. And it helps you, for example, to limit those uh, certain jails that uh, have a certain customer in it or <laughs> a certain user or a certain application yeah, to a certain amount of resources. Exactly. Keep keep uh, one jail from stealing all your CPU time or using up all your disk time and so Or on. let people pay for more, right? You you uh, say, ah, mm, if you pay $100 more, then I will be happy to raise your limit to a little bit. And that takes hopefully not an hour to do because it's just a setting that you can do. And they describe here in the article, the RCTL command that does this as well as the rctl.conf. So that is kind of a rule set, like a, like a firewall, but it is for limiting uh, what kind of resources uh, you can yeah, well limit. So the list here for the resources is described at the beginning. The, so there's resources like data size or core dump size. That is typically uh, done via uh, login.conf. I set that to zero because I don't do uh, core dumps. Yeah, uh, but uh, login.conf uh, applies specifically to one user and there's not really a way to do it to everybody in this jail can only use this many processes or whatever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, max proc so is yeah, one. Yeah, they have uh, an example here where you can see literally user colon, then the username in this example, hast, then colon the property, which is max proc. And then finally the rule, which is deny equals 100. So if the, they have more than 100 processes, they'll get denied uh, access to create any more beyond that. Mm -hmm. 
And you cannot only deny, you can also define different actions like log, just log a warning to the console, but nevertheless let it go. Then you can run devctl, send a notification to devd daemon, or throttle is another interesting one, like slow down the process execution, but that's only supported for the read uh, bytes per second, write bytes per second, read uh, LO bytes per second. What's those? IOPS. Ah, right, IO. Uh, and of course, so reads and writes can be throttled down. So that makes for interesting application behavior. Yeah. Um, so in, in particular, the read and write uh, bytes and IOPS are implemented at the VFS layer. Um, so it applies to UFS and ZFS. Uh, but specifically in ZFS, it limits at the very top of ZFS. Um, so if you're pulling something out of the cache, it will still be rate limited. Uh, so these settings don't actually restrict how much they can read and write from the disk, but how much they read and write logically. Um, and so that means that, you know, the setting a limit here should keep them from being able to cause more than that much usage on the physical hardware. But, uh, you know, it's, it's not exactly one-to-one. Uh, and you know, it's, it would hard to, it would be hard to do one-to-one -one anyway, because you have things like mirrors and raid Z where, you know, it's not IOPS per disc that you could really limit. It's, it's for this whole pool. Yeah. So you cannot simulate a slow disc. You could only simulate a slow system. Well, basically you can say, you know, this user can only read and write to this file system this much, even if it's all out of cache and it's not ever hitting the disc for the reads. Uh, you still rate limit them, which is, I think, in most cases, what people would want anyway. Okay. Yeah, so there's a couple of um, things you need to be aware about when you write these rules for the resource limits. Uh, for example, don't forget the colon at the end of your, uh, the name of your, uh, like the user. So if you say, uh, where is it, the example? Ah, yes, if you do rctl user, then you get an error message. But if you do rctl uh user colon then you get uh some results back or all the right. rules for yeah, that. that yeah user colon means all rules that apply to user and then the user part is blank but if you do rctl jail colon clara you'll get back all the rules that apply to the jail clara whereas if it's just jail colon it would be any rules that apply to any jails mm -hmm. oh yeah that seems to make a lot of sense and many that doesn't jail.conf also include uh rctl support where you can like interact with that and say this um, jail should have only these kinds I'm of not sure but uh it might make sense where you want to apply rules as the jail starts uh yeah. but i'm pretty sure with rctl you can have the rules persist in the background and then just if the jail name matches then it uh, will apply the limits mm -hmm. yeah and so they provide a couple of common examples like uh the uh, limiting the CPU of 80% of the of a single CPU core, a single one, and one gigabytes of RAM for only this one jail. So that's kind of a, you know, service <laughs> or a uh, preset that you say and never go above. So you can do a bit of better planning. And they show how you uh, apply those. Pretty straightforward. You can use all the examples here and make use of limits right away. So next up, we have a, a post from our friend Chris Seibelman, who says, the modern trend of variable DNS results and its effect on troubleshooting. So I saw this tweet when he tweeted it a couple days ago, and I wondered what the story was behind it. And then luckily he wrote it up on his blog. So uh, last week he tweeted, it's DNS. Of course it's DNS. It's always DNS. 
And he says, okay, it involves DNS because the modern internet loves to give different people different DNS answers for the same thing. And then all your other troubleshooting goes out the window until you notice that. So he says that parenthetical at the end there uh, is important and increasingly irritating. The story is somewhat straightforward. A coworker reported that people in his group at the university were having trouble downloading things from Dropbox from anywhere inside their network. Although sometimes it would work for a while and then stop again. He managed to find a specific Canary URL inside the Dropbox download process that was always failing. For us, the host of this IP address, uh, or of the URL, is a DNS CNAME for edge-block-www-env.dropbox-dns.com, uh, which we could get the IPv4 address for, and so we dug into various troubleshooting based on both the name and the IP address from various network points we had access to. Wait, did I say the IP address? Uh, that turned out to be a lie. If you queried the authoritative DNS server for dropboxdns.com from almost all of the university's network and various other networks uh, that they had access to in Toronto, the host name resolved to 11.15. If you queried the authoritative name server from the specific slash 24 of the university's network, then it resolved to 3.15. And then if you waited a little while and tried again, maybe it came back as 4.15. The IP address that almost everyone gets works fully. The IP address that this one specific group would get wouldn't work from within the university, although it seemed to work fine elsewhere. And all of these IP addresses have a 60 second TTL. So all the DNS responses. So one theory about why things worked some of the time is that every once in a while they would get back one of the IP addresses that was reachable from the university and the rest of the time they would get back one that didn't. All of this created a marvelous matrix of troubleshooting confusion. If you ran a verbose curl command or did a ping or DNS lookup from outside our network, the IP address you got would work just like the one from inside. If you did the reverse, the IP address wouldn't work. If you tested from inside the university, if you tested from outside, it would work. And you didn't realize you were getting different IP addresses and had just copied the URL back and forth in the process of troubleshooting. Just a little aside, the, the favorite most powerful curl command I learned about is they have a switch, I think it's dash dash resolve or something, where you can have it not do the DNS lookup, but have this specific host name resolve to this IP address for the, for the purposes of this one curl command. And it makes it much easier to test things like, especially if you're dealing with SSL certificates, it's like, I, I need you to connect as if the name was www.whatever.com, but I want you to connect to this IP address that's not where the DNS points right now. So they had lots of fun with troubleshooting uh, because the IP addresses were much, much shorter than the host name. Uh, sometimes they would get fooled. Clearly, uh, there is more of a problem than just the different DNS results. But the D different DNS results certainly didn't help, especially with debugging. And increasingly, it is the reality that DNS lookup results are always going to be like that. They aren't consistent in any way, either over time or in what the, you see from this network versus another network location even very fine-grained ones, you know, as much as just a single slash 24. Uh, and I, I definitely second that. I know for a fact that the DNS system I built does this. Uh, different slash 24s get a different result as part of our load balancing. Uh, and then over time, it can also decide to change, you know, based on which servers are busy and which ones aren't. Uh, certain servers go in and out of the pool of available servers. And that, along with the, the slash 24 of the requester, uh, makes a big difference in what results we return. And we also use a short TTL again, so that 
an overloaded server can start getting less or no new traffic until it's back in good shape. Yeah, makes sense. But I agree that it can make it really uh, difficult to troubleshoot. Kind of not related to the problem that I don't think they're seeing right here, but what I saw was there was a problem with one port on a many port link aggregation upstream from me. So three or four hops away at a backbone ISP, they had like, you know, 600 gig links bonded together. Well, it turned out there was something wrong with the line card or whatever in one of those links. <sighs> so depending on how your traffic hashed, if, whether or not you ended up on that specific link. So like you try a, uh, an MTR or trace route or whatever from a specific IP and you would see this packet loss. But if you used the one IP higher, like the machine happened to have three IP addresses. Mm. If you did the trace route with a different source address, you would take a different path through that hash mm. and not have a problem. That is Or sometimes tough. the hash includes the port number. So you can connect to SSH fine, but port 80 won't work or vice versa. Mm. And you're like, this makes no sense. How do I get behind that problem? Yeah. Yeah. And, and then you you just report it upstream and eventually like, yep, we found the line card that was hashing badly and was throwing the errors or whatever. Mm. Like, wow. That's, you know, just one sixth of the, there's a one sixth chance that any one, you know, set of IP address source and destination IP address and port was going to have much worse performance than the others. Yeah, it's even hard to monitor this, right? They probably just check if the link is up, but not like which line no, they is check, taking you know, it. error counts, but mm. maybe the error count wasn't going fast enough, or maybe it just wasn't having errors that were detected the right way, or yeah. the errors were on the other side. And, you know, that's, it's a, a link between two ISPs and, you know, our side seems fine, but they're not getting the packets we're sending them or whatever. <laughs> Okay, let's go into our news roundup this week. Uh, it's Google Summer of Code season uh, of sorts. So the mentoring organizations have been picked by Google already. And here are the call for participants. Uh, the first one is from the FreeBSD Foundation. And I'll read that one. Uh, where students can actually apply. So the FreeBSD Foundation writes, the FreeBSD project is excited to announce that we will again be serving as a mentoring organization in this year's Google Summer of Code. If you ever wanted to work with FreeBSD, take advantage of this amazing opportunity. So for the people who are completely new to this, what is Google Summer of Code? Not just for students anymore. Google Summer of Code is a unique program where new contributors to open source, ages 18 and over, are paired with a mentor to introduce them to the open source community and provide guidance while they work on a real world open source project over the summer. GSOC contributors earn a stipend to work on the medium. This is like 175 hour or large project. The large ones have 350 hours. And please note that this is not an internship. So uh, yet provides an invaluable experience and allows you to be part of an amazing community. Since its inception, Google Summer of Code has enabled more than 18,000 Google Summer of Code contributors from 112 countries to work with 746 open source projects and produce millions of lines of code. And so why choose to work with 
uh, FreeBSD or pick that project. FreeBSD is an open source Unix-like operating system descended from the Unix developed at the University of California, Berkeley in the 1970s. Uh, most people know this, but just for completeness, we founded in 1993, the FreeBSD project consists of several hundred committers and thousands of contributors. And unlike Linux, FreeBSD is a complete operating system, including the kernel, user land, documentation, and tools, giving those working with the project better understanding of how complete operating systems work. Uh, Want to learn more or are getting interested in these uh, projects? Start by checking out the FreeBSD Summer of Code projects page on FreeBSD's wiki or website. And there's a specific GSOC idealists page where mentors write up what possible project they could take. And that's a good way of contacting the folks and flashing out the idea. If you have questions, please reach out to the FreeBSD GSOC admins. They are linked from the article. And join us for the FreeBSD Google Summer of Code office hours. That's Wednesday, March 16th, 2022 at 1700. <laughs> yeah. Oh, so yeah. The, the video from that <laughs> is up on YouTube now. Though. Oh, okay. That's been recorded. Excellent. But applications are still open uh, from April 4 till April 19th. So there's a bit of time to get to know the projects okay yes yeah. uh and if you're already an experienced developer from freebsd i know lots of freebsd developers watch the show uh i would recommend looking at being a, a gsoc mentor i did it a couple years ago and uh mentored the project for bectl uh the c the kind of re-implementation of the boot environments tool uh and it was quite rewarding i i don't have time to do it this year but i hope that somebody does uh, to to mentor some of those projects. You know, sometimes what comes out of the project isn't quite finished or whatever, uh, but I also know, you know, uh, quite a few of the the younger FreeBSD contributors that are major contributors now uh, started through GSOC. Oh, yes. And they're now themselves mentoring other GSOC students, so that's a nice passing of the baton. Yeah, like I think at least a dozen of... Uh, the best new committers that FreeBSD has uh, came via GSOC. Mm. Yeah, quite certainly. So, yeah. Oftentimes, even if the, the project they started at GSOC takes another year or two before it's actually integrated, or if it, uh, you know, just never actually finishes. But if we got the person exposed to FreeBSD uh, and it was a good experience, then we get the most important thing out of it, and so do they. Mm -hmm. And the NetBSD Foundation had a similar uh, announcement on their website. And they write over on blog.netbsd.org. We are happy to announce that the NetBSD Foundation is a mentoring organization at Google Summer of Code 2022. Would you like to contribute to NetBSD or package source during the summer? Please give a look at the NetBSD Wiki Google Summer of Code page with possible ideas and or please join the NetBSD-Code IRC channel on Libera chat or get in touch with us via mailing lists to propose new projects. And they note that unlike past years where Google Summer of Code was opened only to university students, uh, this year you are uh, also allowed if you're 18 years or older, you can also be a GSOC contributor. So no need to be enrolled in a university of sorts. For more information, uh, check out their Google Summer of Code uh, website. Everything uh, is linked from our uh, show notes page. And so you will be easy to find those. Okay, so that was about Google Summer of Code. Next up is rsync technical notes, quarter four of 2021. So why would that be interesting? Uh, mostly because it's about ZFS. <laughs> oh, excellent. Okay, so yeah. Uh, so the kind of follow up on their Q3 report where they talked about introducing the ZFS metadata, uh, metadata devices. So the new special VDEV type, they added three or four SSDs to their large pool that would just store the metadata and they have kind of their report on how that went. 
So like they say, uh, further observations on ZFS metadata special devices. And last quarter, they discussed how they added the metadata devices. By default, adding a special device to a zpool causes all newly written pool metadata to be written to that specific device instead of, in their case, the regular hard drives. Uh, so one thing to remember that the, the metadata device is not a cache, it is the authoritative copy of the metadata. So if you lose the special device, then all your metadata that was written to it is gone and all those files are, you can't even tell that they're files anymore. Hmm. Uh, and so, you know, in their case, they set it up as a three or four way or four deep mirror of different brands of SSDs so that they really hope no two of them would fail at the same time uh, and that they would always have lots of redundancy that way. Okay. Um, but so they say, presuming this device is uh, substantially faster than your spinning disk in your pool, it can provide a big performance increase. If you write enough metadata fast enough, this is probably the final configuration of your metadata special device. However, if your workload consists of one or more ZFS datasets that store and subsequently frequently access many very small files, you can actually store those files on the metadata device as well. Mm -hmm. um, so the original concept behind these uh, special VDEVs was for DRAID. Uh, so DRAID is a, a different version of RAID Z that always does a full stripe write, um, which means that small files end up taking up a lot of space because we round up to an entire stripe. And because of that, they added this way that, oh, if you have a bunch of tiny 4K files, we'll write those to the special mirrored set of SSDs instead of to uh, DRAID, which uh, originally DRAID was designed for some like uh, big data science computing stuff where all the blocks were gonna be like 16 megabytes. Hmm. And so they wanted to get all the tiny writes, little 4K things like directory entries or whatever, off onto a different device. So if you wanna configure that, you can set a property on a data set called uh, special underscore small underscore blocks and a size. Any uh, file that's that size or smaller will get written to the metadata device instead of the regular pool. Now, it depends how big your pool is and how big your metadata device is. The downside to doing this is that you can fill up your metadata device with small files and then not have it accelerate your metadata anymore. Huh, right. By default, there is a reservation to prevent that though. Uh, so say, regardless of your configuration, small files will cease to be written to the special device once free space drops below a predefined threshold. So there's the sysctl vfs.zfs.specialclassmetadatareserve% percent, uh, which defaults to 25%. So once free space is below 25%, it will stop writing small blocks and only write metadata uh, to make sure that it doesn't overfill with just the small blocks. But depending on your mix of small blocks and metadata, um, you could decide to change that, or mostly you could decide whether it makes sense to try to put the small blocks on these SSDs or not. You know, if, you're, if your pool is hundreds of terabytes, you're probably going to end up needing all of that SSD space just for the metadata. But if your pool is smaller and your SSD is big enough, then it might make sense to move all those small blocks to the SSDs as well. Okay. And then they have some graphs uh, from their system as, you know, they added these special metadata VDEVs to an existing pool. So only as files changed and the metadata had to be updated, did that metadata start migrating to the SSDs. And so in these graphs, you can see as they uh, slowly filled up their SSDs over the course of uh, a couple of weeks, they went from, you know, 50% uh, full to 95% full. Mm -hmm. And then you can see also in the uh, their megabytes of reads and writes per second, 
you can see that suddenly the write speed dropped off as the device got full uh, and it was only able to write new stuff as old stuff aged uh, got deleted. And you can see that the number of writes eventually uh, fell quite a bit lower, but the reads stayed about the same. And they're reading all that metadata and small blocks off of the SSD instead of their spinning hard drives. And I see your name a little further down in the fast resolver section. Yeah, uh, so I, I, my company Clara uh, helped them decide to do this and, and make sure they did it right. Oh, okay. Uh, and also with the, the resilver stuff they talked about. So they have an example here of how to how they created their four-way mirror uh, with SSDs and also how they ran into the problem of, okay, we did this and we maybe used small blocks more than we should have. Uh, and so now our metadata device is full and we're not getting the speed, we're not getting as much of a speed boost anymore. Uh, so they decided to replace their SSDs with even bigger ones. So they talked about how they replaced each of the four SSDs with an even larger SSD to give them more room for metadata. And they show how they did that. And then once they had replaced all the drives using the Zipo Online-E to expand and get access to that extra space. Mm -hmm. Yep. And then they talk about the faster resilver. Uh, in particular, you know, from time to time, you may believe that a disk drive is uh, failing just enough to impact performance. You know, oftentimes if a zpool feels slow it might be one hard drive that hasn't quite failed but it's <laughs> acting really dodgy you know you can use the smart uh, output or looking at zpool status dash v or uh, zpool iostat dash v or gstat uh, and, and other tools to kind of figure out which drive might be dragging your pool down so when they had a suspect for this they decided the one way to test that was to use zpool offline on that disk and then see if the pool started responding better afterwards but their concern was, if that disk isn't the problem, I don't want to have to face like a seven-day resilver <laughs> on my, you know, hundreds and hundreds of terabyte pool yeah. uh, to, to add that device back in. And I explained to them that ZFS has uh, a feature called the dirty time log. So when a drive goes offline for a short time, ZFS is able to keep track of what, you know, transactions that device missed. And so when they offlined it, saw that it didn't improve performance of the pool, they could run zpool online and bring the disk back. And then ZFS is like, oh, I know that you missed the last 35 seconds worth of writes. Uh, let me reconstruct those for you. Does a quick resilver uh, and the, the pool is back uh, to full stat in like less than a minute. Cool. That's certainly a time saver. Yeah. Um, and, you know, this can really help when a, a drive just temporarily gets disconnected or anything like that. Very nice article. It's a good write-up to... The problem and the graphs also illustrated very well. Yep. And then they also have uh, some talk about they use um, how they restrict what commands people can run on their server and how people, uh, they found a way that someone could maybe break through that and then how they fixed it. Oh, also good to know <laughs> to test your own systems. All right. Uh, then we have something from OpenBSD, Userland CPU Frequency Scheduling. And this is on tildegit.org, and the name Soline is kind of uh, reminding us that uh, she has been busy. And so this one is better read from the bottom to the top. So what is this thing? Uh, so what's it's doing, this CPU frequency scheduling? Uh, OBSD frequency 
QD, obviously frequency daemon, will change the perf policies to CTL to manual and will change the CPU frequency by pulling every often, like 100 milliseconds, the CPU load and change the frequency accordingly. The perf policy is set to auto upon exit. So the end goal is to provide a feature-rich CPU frequency scheduler for the following use case. You are battery saving while keeping responsiveness when needed and APM-L doesn't do or reduce heat or electrical coil noise when on power plug because the new default assuming mainboard and CPU can manage itself doesn't work well or you want to reduce the power consumption for systems on power plug while staying performant enough or uh, provide settings for minimum and maximum frequency available in some automatic mode. People may have dollar reason to use this. Yeah, like um, not the newest generation, but a couple generations ago of Intel, uh, you know, when, when the Turbo Boost came out, it's like if you didn't actually tell the CPU to go to the frequency of its base clock plus one, it wouldn't actually enable Turbo Boost. And so you wouldn't actually get the extra performance. Whereas just telling it, hey, you can go up to, you know, whatever base clock is plus one, then it would know that it was allowed to use Turbo Boost. Yeah. And then, you know, interesting thing on laptops is that sometimes it uses less battery to run at the higher clock and use more power like get the work done in less time and then go back to idle and using less power than to use a medium amount of power for a longer time to get the same amount of work done. Yeah. To that end, uh, so there's a section relating to the OpenBSD project. Uh, this is mostly a playground project, so she can experiment with CPU frequency scheduling. There is no goal to import it into the OpenBSD kernel ever, but maybe she can learn here and improve the kernel code later. And the algorithm is also explained on the page as well as how to download and compile and test it on yourself with a bit of a usage description as well. Yeah, I know on the very newest Intel CPUs, the way this works is a bit different. I know there's some surprises when people upgraded to 13.0, a FreeBSD 13.0, and uh, the very new machines supported, instead of using the CPU freak driver to be able to do this with, you know, PowerD or PowerD XX, um, it has a p-state driver where the BIOS and the firmware do a bit more of the, the management for you uh, and are able to handle, I think, running different cores at different speeds, which wasn't something that's possible with the CPU freak type driver. Okay, very nice. Now so let's jump right into our beastie bits now. Uh, there's an unofficial hardened BSD live CD uh, on groups.google.com. So this is probably the listing, the mailing archives here. And so this message reads, hello everyone, I have created some hardened BSD live CD. If you want to test it, you will find the links below. System requirements for using it is four gigabytes of memory and VGA capable of 1024 to by 678 uh, resolution. The live CD contains the common software as well as PAX test and HBSD-check-sec. They also contain a second kernel, FreeBSD, for debugging purposes. And this is not an official project, so bear with me. It's just for fun. So they provide the links and the checksums for the ISOs. All right. Interesting to see it uh, include the um, stock FreeBSD kernel so that if you run into a problem, you can tell if it's specific to, uh, to harden BSD or not. Yeah, so you have a base for comparison. And hopefully it will happen this year. The EuroBSDCon 2022 call for paper is open. And please don't submit on the last day. That's what they kind of Yes, as, as a member of the program committee who has to review all these very quickly once the deadline closes, uh, it's very helpful if people submit early so that we can start 
uh, seeing what's out there and what people are interested in talking about. Yeah, so EuroBSDCon is a, a European technical conference for users and developers of various BSD-based systems. This conference is scheduled to take place September 15th to 18th in Vienna, Austria. The tutorials will be held on the two days before, the Thursday and the Friday, um, and registered participants and the talks are presented on the Saturday and the Sunday. In person, So the call for papers... Yes, and the call for papers is open now and will close on May 26th. So we have lots of time, but please don't wait until the end of May. Um, prospective speakers will be notified of their acceptance uh, about a week after uh, the call for papers closes. And we can do that a lot more nicely if, if we have uh, more of the submissions weeks before the deadline. Yeah, and they have like some... Our, our backend draws a graph. And we see like ah, one oh. paper, one paper, one paper, <laughs> one paper, 40 papers. Like, you That's bad. a big jump at the end. <laughs> they also have some information about accommodation and uh, tourism in Vienna. So there's plenty of uh, choices available already. So make travel plans now, but make sure that you can cancel them in case things go wrong. Yeah, I think most airlines are offering... Uh free flexibility yeah. uh, that normally would cost a lot extra. So that's helpful. Unfortunately, yeah. So check out uh, the whole website, uh, 2022.eurobsdcon.org. And I'm fairly sure a lot of people will book uh, and hopefully attend if it all yeah, goes well. Yeah, I think the fact that we haven't been able to do it in person in two in a bit years uh, will make this one of the biggest ones ever. In the oh, world. yes. So excited. So the, the talks are expected to be 45 minutes uh, and then time for questions at the end. Uh, and delivered in English. And then the uh, tutorials, uh, which are a big part of the conference, are two and a half to three hours for the half-day tutorial or five to six hours for the full-day tutorial. Okay. Uh, so if you'd rather teach people how to do something or learn how to do something as uh, rather than just sit through the talks, then we have that at the conference as well. Yeah, there's something for everyone and uh, plenty of learning to be done and well. Yeah. <laughs> and and remember, uh, you know, we just need you to submit a short and concise text description of what it is you're going to talk about, you know, 100 words or so and a bit more is fine. And a short uh, bio about yourself. Uh, and then we will reach out and let you know. Uh, if you are seeking funding, uh, then make sure you get your uh, requests in early and oh, yes. links yeah. to all the details about that as well. And we keep you updated uh, about the status of the conference and hopefully we will have a list of uh, talks and speakers. All right. Uh, next up is testing parallel forwarding. We found that on Undeadly Org from the Mr. Pushing Packets Speedily department. Uh, so we have uh, results from a performance test by someone I couldn't probably pronounce properly so I just <laughs> refer you to the article. Um so they say they have tested Alexander Bloom's parallel IP forwarding diff and they've used some nice or got some nice results. Readers should be aware that uh, Bloom's diff sets net underscore task queue equals four, which means that forwarding will use four CPU threads and that this diff will affect only network cards that have multi-queue support. And at the time of this writing, those cards were IX, IXL and MCX. In their tests, they were sending 14 mega... That's million packets per second. Mi million packets per second. M PPS, here we go. Uh, UDP packets over IX interfaces, uh, which have 16 queues. And oh, and the yeah. test system was a Supermicro with a 24-core AMD Epic 7413 at 2.65 GHz. And they provided the results uh, for like plane forwarding with uh, 1 million states 
uh, with PF and some various configurations like using their, yeah, I think a virtual Ethernet thing, the TPMR and the regular bridge. Interestingly, looking even at the plane forwarding, you see as the number of task queues goes up, you get more performance to a certain degree, and then you run into contention and adding more task queue threads actually lowers performance. Mm. Uh, so it looks like the default of four is a kind of a sweet spot for most of them. Uh, definitely the plane forwarding uh, for PF, and they're still getting performance increases up to eight, but once they went to 12 task queues, performance was actually starting to drop again. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, but with the VEB driver, um, they actually peaked at uh, 5 million packets per second with the 12 threads. Oh, not bad. It's getting a bit more parallel this way. Yep. Very nice. Uh, and then the bridge driver uh, was the worst performance, but that seems to be why the virtual ethernet bridge the veb interface uh, was created because the performance of the plane bridge was not very good and then i hadn't seen this other device before tpmr it's a 802.1q two port mac relay interface uh -huh. is a simplified ethernet bridge with exactly two port members and is unconditionally relays ethernet packets between the two ports so i guess that's maybe kind of like the e-pair thing on uh, FreeBSD. Could be, yeah, so to... Basically a bridge that only ever has two ports. Uh, and so it's more like the e-pair. Yeah. Uh, and that, yeah, there are two new alternatives to the plane bridge do seem to be significantly faster. Mm -hmm. Yep, very good. Uh, we'll stay on Undeadly Org for this next one, which is uh, OpenBSD's IWX gains 11 AC 80 megahertz channel support. And uh, so, yeah, they're following a request for testing thread on the tech mailing list. Stefan Sperling has committed some IEEE 802.11ac support for the IWX. And the commit message reads, uh, add initial support for 802.11ac VHT to the IXW driver. This may IWX this way. Uh, this makes it possible to use 80 megahertz channels and VHT-specific MCS. Other 11ac features remain disabled for now. Wow, good. More Wi-Fi. Uh, looks like it has uh, been tested on the IWM, AX200, and AX201 devices. Ah, yes. And three is the charm. We still stay on Undeadly Org for the ARM64 on Apple M1 system support. OpenBSD is getting there, it seems. Uh, so Marketinus uh, writes, it has taken a while, but I'm pleased to announce that OpenBSD slash ARM64 works well enough on Apple M1 systems for some wider testing. A major milestone was reached with the release of the Asahi Linux installer. Yes, they um, were first porting that and they are using uh, an easy way to add the UEFI firmware to your Apple M1 machine, which is required to boot OpenBSD slash ARM64. They provide some basic steps how to get that. Uh, and after these steps, uh, this machine would now boot into the OpenBSD installer. From this point onward, a normal OpenBSD installation instructions apply. This will keep your existing macOS install even if you select the whole disk option in the installer. That's good to know. Uh, all currently available Apple M1 machines uh, should work, except for the recently announced Mac Studio. That's too new to be supported already. Hardware support isn't complete, but it's on par with Asahi Linux. All the basics, the keyboard, the touchpad, one gigabyte, gigabit Ethernet, sorry, Wi-Fi, USB, NVMe storage, X on the frame buffer console, all work. Cool. And Wi-Fi works even in the OpenBSD installer. There is no suspend resume or hibernate support yet, and the lack of GPU acceleration means that video playback probably isn't a great experience. 
But at this point, only snapshots will work. Ah, well, not bad. But the 7.1 release is around the corner. Development continues at a fairly fast pace, so a sys upgrade every now and then won't hurt. And updates to the UEFI environment may be necessary at certain points as well. Very nice cool. progress. Yeah. Next, we have uh, an article about FreeBSD on the QB Board 2. Uh, they note that uh, they've previously been running NetBSD's EVB ARM or OpenBSD's ARM v7 on their QB Board. And they wrote about it uh, with links there. But the QB Board 2 is ARM v7, uh, released back in 2013. So it's quite ancient now. However, a renewed interest in FreeBSD on my side prompted me to try installing that. Currently, ARMv7 is a tier 2 architecture on FreeBSD, so the system can't be upgraded by FreeBSD update and must be kept up to date by source. I think uh, on an SD card-based system, you wouldn't want to use FreeBSD update anyway. <laughs> yeah. Um, on the plus side, binary packages are available, and uh, you know that makes it much more usable than having to either build the packages, cross-build the packages yourself, or have to try to compile them on a tiny SBC. So the required steps for creating a bootable micro SD card are as follows. On a FreeBSD machine, you need to install the uBoot QBboard2 package and then write the image file and the bootloader to your card. And so they show you how you would do that. The partition will be automatically resized during the first boot to span the entire size of your SD card. Uh, and that shows what the output of running the file command on an executable looks like. So you can see that it's 32-bit LSB ARM EAB, EA, EABI5, etc. Uh, they also have uh, quick runs of MD5 and SHA1 benchmarks to give you an idea of uh, what the performance is like. Uh, and they also have a link here where they've run all the OpenSSL speed benchmarks. And then they have the full output of the D message uh, as well for you to see how it goes. And uh, yeah, the QB board is pretty well supported on FreeBSD. Mm -hmm. That's a uh, good development. This week's episode of BSD Now is sponsored by our friends at Tarsnap, the only secure online backup service you can trust. Even paranoids need backups. So Tarsnap works via the command line in the same way as the tar command, except for the tar file ends up getting created in the cloud. But importantly, all of your data is encrypted on your machine before it goes to the cloud. And your encryption key never leaves your machine. So it means no one at Tarsnap, no one at Amazon, and no one anywhere else can access your backups without the key. So as long as you keep the key safe, your data is safe. And Tarsnap also uses Colin's uh, differencing engine, uh, which is able to uh, deduplicate data and avoid having to send data that's already backed up into the cloud again. So it makes it really nice for backing up your laptop, even on the road, uh, because it can make those backups as small as possible. By doing deduplication and compression, and then the encryption, you make sure that you're sending only the stuff that actually changed, and uh, that it's all safe before it goes to the cloud. So check them out, tarsnap.com slash bsdnow. Here is this uh, section where people can send in their feedback and questions. And after my last scolding last week where we didn't have much, uh, people have responded and they sent us questions again. So thanks for that. If you want to be another person listed here, then send that to feedback at bsdnow.tv so we have your question also answered in another episode. The first one this week is Eric with periodic notifications. 
uh, question. And this goes like the following. On your discussion of periodic, this is episode 445, you missed some options that I immediately set on any new install. Ah, good to know. Daily underscore show underscore success equals no. And weekly and security as weekly's... well. So these ones yeah. basically mean that if the daily run completes successfully and has no uh, odd things to report, it doesn't send you an email, which I agree is a good thing. Uh, mm. He goes on and says, this significantly improves the signal to noise ratio of the periodic notifications. Getting daily nothing to see here messages are quickly disabled or discarded or uh -huh. filtered or ignored. Whereas actually, this is not what I expect messages, then it becomes much more useful. And I would definitely agree with that. Yeah, the alert fatigue is kind of uh, the thing where you miss the important stuff and this prevents that. Very good. I almost wonder if, if this should be the default for 14. Yeah, right. <laughs> that would change something that's been this way in a long time. But, you know, if the first thing everybody does is go and disable the periodic stuff or, you know, never route Roots email to anywhere except for a file that just accumulates cruft in bar spool, then... Yeah, could, could be worth the discussion. <laughs> okay, so thanks, Eric, for this uh, addition to our show notes. And next one is Kevin. That's kind of a very heartwarming one. So Kevin writes here, Hi, BSD Now crew. I don't have a specific question today, but I want to say I appreciate the work you guys do and I look forward to each episode each week. Keep up the good work. Kevin, this is exactly what feedback at BSDNow.tv is, right? <laughs> very well. Thank so you very much glad for that. You're enjoying, yeah, glad you're enjoying the show, Kevin. And uh, yeah, keep up the good work. Yeah, it, it's, it's not hard to, to be presented here this way and you don't have to have this super complicated question for us. It's, small things like that also keeps us motivated to do these things. Although we also like big and complicated things. Um, so yeah, this is the end of this episode for us. We do another recording uh, in a little while but that will come out the week after. So you have to be waiting seven days. Mm -hmm.